To another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the Year of Polygamy series where we seek to understand the practice of Mormon plural marriage. If this is your first time tuning in, I would encourage you to go to episode one where we talk about Fanny Alger as this series is meant to go in order. And if you're not going in order, that's okay. I won't shame you, but I will suggest that you go to the episode before this because this is meant to be part two of a series on Southern Utah. The first the first episode's a little dry, but it helps contextualize what we're going to be talking about today. And as a disclaimer in this what is a series of unfortunate events, I have inhaled an M&M today while ingesting my Diet Dr. Pepper and snacking right before the podcast. So now that I've given you some insight into my snacking habits, hopefully that won't be a problem and my voice can keep up for this podcast. So last episode, I really discussed why saints began moving south. And of course, we know that's, that Brigham Young would send saints, send saints all the way up to Canada and all the way down to Mexico. And we are going to be covering Mexico and Canada coming up. But I want to talk about the expansion southward. And we talked about St. George, which is a big town, which had a high incidence of polygamy, but Southern Utah was really famous for its high percentage of polygamous families. So I'm going to, what I'm going to do today is talk about a few polygamous towns, a few Southern Utah towns, and then I'm going to talk about a few uh, polygamous families that lived in the towns. Now, if you are a budding historian, there are fantastic opportunities to write about women in southern Utah. There's not a lot of writing being done there, and there is a lot of material to work from. There are so many amazing stories to work from, and there's a really great template of uh, sort of frontier fanaticism to work on. As I mentioned in the other podcast, southern Utah looks different than the rest of the West. The land... It's almost as if you step out of a spaceship onto Mars. The land is red. There's red dirt. There's red rocks. There's red sunsets. Many of the English saints who came over from green, green Europe describe what they feel like the land was on fire, like this is their Zion. Plus, they were isolated and they were poor. And some of Brigham's most fanatical loyal fans were leaders in Southern Utah. And we're going to talk about that. We talked a little bit about George A. Smith already, but I'm going to talk about, um, I'm going to talk about some of the other, the other little cities. The first one I'm going to start with is a really fun one. It's if you ever go down to the church history library or church history museum downtown in Salt Lake City, you will see a little display that talks about a town called Orderville. And really, I think it's Orderville. There were a few towns um, that were living the United Order, and Orderville was one of them. So I'm going to talk about that first, and then I want to talk about Santa Clara and Cedar City. This podcast should have a trigger warning. We're going to be talking about some 
really dark stuff coming up, really salacious sort of juicy details that I promised that I would bring. So I'm going to bring them. But um, towards the end of the podcast, especially as we get into Cedar City, you might want to take your kids out of the room. Again, this is fanatic, fanatic Frontier Utah. And as we talked about in our history podcast with Joe Geisner, there was a lot of real devotion, fiery devotion that I don't see you get quite like you do in Southern Utah. It's surrounded by booming mining towns. You have Gentiles coming in, you have threats of the government, and you have this new principle ready to take over the earth because these saints really believed that the second coming was coming. Um, there was evidence to suggest that Joseph had prophesied the second coming coming in 1890. So these people really believed, I mean, they really believed that Jesus was coming soon and that it was their job to get this land ready and prepare their hearts and their families for his return. So first, let's talk about the little town of Orderville. If you can still go to Orderville now, it's, it exists. Um, it has some cute little restaurants and hotels and is a fun stop if you're heading to like Glendale or Southern Utah. It's set sort of in this desert, um, scenery surrounded by cedar trees and red rock cliffs in the background. Remember that as early as the 1830s, Joseph Smith was talking about the sort of communal living, the sort of law of consecration. Consecration and stewardship would end as the saints were driven from Jackson County in 1833. Joseph really was trying to organize it, but, you know, there was so much conflict going on. The people and the, the surrounding territory was not ready for such a difficult and new principle. Now, these these sort of communal livings, these orders of giving your everything towards the greater good, is certainly not Mormon-based. In the Burnover District, there were other religions practicing these certain kind of lifestyles. So Joseph Smith was not unique or rare in coming up with something like this. And again, when we're talking about communal lifestyles, I'm not talking about sort of like eco-utopian values. When we think of this sort of utopia that Joseph was trying to establish we like to think that it was, I mean, there. It, let's just be clear that there are different kinds of utopian values. Like there's eco-villages whose goals are to become more socially, economically, and ecologically sustainable. Mormonism's, Mormonism was not really primarily interested in making something ecologically sustainable. They were, their utopian ideals were based on economy. They were more based on exchange of goods. And so when we're talking about these sort of laws of consecration or sustainability and stewardship, we're talking about an economic exchange. The saints would not have cared about being vegan or, you know, recycling their goods and reusing and taking care of the land. That is not how they viewed the land. So I think that that's an important distinction when we talk about that because I think it really does shape sort of Mormons' current contemporary views on the environment and how it's just not really a priority in a lot of our theology, yet being economically sustainable is. So, um, you know, Joseph tried to bring back certain laws of consecration throughout his lifetime. The United Order in, Ho- in Ohio which was part of a larger consecration and stewardship system, collapsed. At the same time, um, 
1833 because of internal mismanagement and a generally, generally unfavorable economic climate. Brigham Young, who was one of the first apostles chosen by Brigham, by Joseph Smith, was really influenced by the memory of these endeavors. They stuck with him. In fact, they stuck with him so much that he sort of feels a feverish fire to bring them back later on. The memory that he had would help persuade him in the 1870s that to conclude that this is the right move for the saints to move in this direction. Young's wish that the spiritual and temporal interests of Mormons be combined um, in this sort of unit utopian ideal already found promising models for him. For example, he was already experimenting with these ideas in the mid-1860s in the Utah towns of Lehigh and Brigham City. He had cooperatives set up. We see Brigham working in cooperatives. This is not unique to Mormonism or Brigham Young. Joseph Smith was trying to do this. It failed miserably. He wasn't good at that. He wasn't good at being in charge of people's money and things like that. But we see the Bishop Storehouse being sort of this first example of a cooperative but Lehigh and Brigham City really get it going. And then in 1868, Brigham Young found Zion's Cooperative Mercantile Institution, which is ZCMI. And um, it is really meant to help the saints, but Brigham had very specific purposes in mind. He was very wary of outsiders in the 1850s and 1860s. And he didn't want the saints to depend on outsiders. He didn't want Gentile influence at all, and he wanted to limit it. But he wasn't a dummy. He recognized that the saints were running out of clothing. They were running out of supplies that they needed from the East. Cotton, for example, in 1861, it was cut off for, during the Civil War, and they were not allowed to get cotton. Brigham did not want his people trading with the Gentiles, with the miners, with the soldiers, and he certainly didn't want, it, want them going out of the territory to get their goods. So he founds ZCMI and really tries to, you know, establish this own very uh, Utah-centric, Utah Territory-centric economic trading system. You can kind of compare it if you know anything about the railroad systems, especially in like West Virginia, where um, they would give railroad coins to the workers and have them buy in their own stores. Uh, this is what Brigham Young was doing. At one point, you know, I talked about Brigham tried the desert alphabet. He wanted to have his own language. He wanted everything to be his own. I mean, he really wanted this to be the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God did things differently than the rest of the world. So he sets up ZCMI and um, hopes that this drives out non-Mormon merchants. With this Salt Lake City ZCMI being the center wholesaling facility, Young would encourage the establishment of some 150 retail branches in almost every Mormon town and village. So ZCMI becomes a center in Utah, and then in 150 different places, you have sort of your own little mini franchise of ZCMI. It had short-term success. It worked for a while. But Brigham Young was wrestling with other problems as well, not just the economic exchange of goods, but how to keep the saints apart culturally and economically from the incoming floods of Gentiles who were attracted to all the gold and silver strikes in the Utah mountains. The Panic of 1873 provided a really sharp lesson in the dangers of integration with the national economy. 
Those areas of Utah that were tied to mining suffered severely. While Brigham City had its own little, you know, elaborate cooperative system, it seemed unaffected in the Panic of 1873. And Brigham saw this as God sort of putting a stamp of approval on this cooperative system. He traveled to St. George during the winter of 1873 and 1974, and he observes the crushing poverty of the saints. It was a terrible, difficult place to live. Like I said in the other podcast, pink eye abounded because of all the dust storms. The land was really hard to work. There was just crushing heat, flooding rivers, new animals that they hadn't encountered. It was really a hard place to live. So Brigham Young sees this. He sees disaffection. He sees low spirits and all this poverty. And he wants to figure out how to control the situation. The previous October, before the, his December trip, Lorenzo Snow, who was one of the founders of the Brigham City Cooperatives, preached a sermon and it must have still been ringing in Brigham's, Brigham Young's ears. In his sermon, he said, quote, It is more than 40 years since the Order of Enoch was introduced and rejected. One would naturally think that it is about time to begin to honor it, end quote. The Order of Enoch, of course, is a sort of law of consecration that Joseph Smith originally tried to institute. So we know that December, Brigham has this bug in him to establish something like this. And by February, he starts urging each settlement to organize under the United Order of Enoch. It was so important to him that he actually postponed the April General Conference so he could be in Salt Lake City to introduce personally the new system of economic reform. This becomes an enthusiastic movement, just like Brigham Young wanted. You know, by the 1860s, the government threats, there's a lot of violence, there's a lot of pressure from the government. The saints are colonizing the land. It is crushing labor. It is, it is really hard to do. It's a fiery, fiery time. Leaders are hard on their people. And they're living this new law of polygamy, which was challenging all of them. You can imagine that their spirits were low. And... All of a sudden, Brigham comes with this new law, this new higher law of, listen, we're going to be doing something better than the old stuff. And in a church of restorationists, this is what it was about, right? You know, Joseph was restoring the the new kind of masonry, not the bad kind of masonry, but the new kind of masonry. He was restoring the new kind of marriage, not the bad old kind of marriage, the new kind of marriage. He was restoring the new gospel, the new ordinances, the new covenants. And Brigham would do the same thing. Brigham was saying, okay, now that we have been settling, now it's time to do something different. We're going to be different than the Gentiles. So that he announces this new system and it grows. And Mormons get so enthusiastic about it that they start getting rebaptized in order to indicate their commitment to the new order. Again, we talked about baptism isn't like how we have baptism now. Saints would get baptized again and again to sort of show their commitments to new principles. You can imagine what an exciting sort of buzz would go through the towns knowing that something was going to happen. If, if, bishops or leaders were reluctant to do this, the church used this as an opportunity to clean house. They took out bishops who were lazy, who were reluctant, who had problems, and they cleaned house with this and used it um, as a good opportunity to get people who were in line and on board. They printed broadsides of the rules of the United Order, which were posted in ward meeting houses and, and all over. They had these new 
new um, rules posted up. And they committed these members to a general moral reform, as well as living this communal order. Church members were instructed to prepare deeds of consecration. Of course, these deeds had been brought up before in the 1850s, but they were never really acted upon because of the Utah War disrupted everything. So the saints would have to change their ways. Under Young's leadership, producers would generally deed their property to the order. So whatever house you had colonized or settled, you were now going to deed that property to the United Order. And all of the order would share the cooperative's net income. Sometimes you would divide it into shares based on the amount of the original property that you contributed. And sometimes members of the order would receive wages for the work on the communal property. Now remember, even though Brigham Young had been thinking about this for years and years and years, this had never been really instituted by him, and he was a brilliant organizer, but he had a lot of kinks he had to work out. The plan, the cooperative plan was used in at least 200 Mormon communities that we know of. Most of them were in rural outlying areas of the central Mormon settlements. So, for example, Great Salt Lake had its cooperatives, but it was still sort of this... Um, more worldly sort of town. I don't know Brigham Young would have seen it like that, but of course there was, you know, the federal government was in there. They had a new territorial governor. They had the soldiers there. They had prostitution and whorehouses in downtown Salt Lake. So it wasn't like Brigham Young could control it in this sort of way. But it was instituted in a lot of settlements around the big areas. Most of the communities would hold out only two or three years before returning to a more standard economic system. It was really hard to do. Um, one of the last ones to stay around was the one in Bunkerville, Nevada in 1877. The Bunkerville Cooperative dissolved under pressure from limited water and lack of individual dedication in 1880. The whole thing would actually be really short-lived, and by the time of Brigham Young's death um, in 1877, the United Orders had mostly failed, and the church was just not interested in in doing it anymore. They had other concerns. The federal government was really cracking down, and they, you know, people had tried it, and they were just not into it. Historian Andrew Carl Larson pointed out that the failure of these ventures was rooted in the frailties of human nature. He said, quote, the habits of an acquisitive society were too strongly forged to be broken without the utmost devotion and selflessness to the cause and rugged individualism triumphed over the abortive attempt at communal ownership and communal living here, end quote. Even though it ended, many members believed that the United Order would be established again sometimes, sometime in the near future, usually before the return of Christ. And it really did help solidify in their mind the the need for welfare and humanitarian aid because they saw those as like a placeholder for um, this communal living. Communal living was too hard for us. We couldn't do it, but let's get systems of humanitarian aid in order. And this will be a predecessor or a stepping stone to the renewed practice of the United Order in the future. Sometimes the United Order worked if you had a really good leader, but sometimes it didn't. Let's talk about what it looked like. Uh, so again, every community was a little bit different, but generally we know that there were about, let's, let's look in the, in the order of Kanab, for example. By 1874, there were about 81 families and about 17% of the men that lived in the community practicing polygamy. 
So what they did is they had households that were simple in structure, and they were usually two to three bedrooms. And there was about three children per mother in every household, and polygamous wives were expected to live in the same home as well. So that would be a difficult thing to do. Large families in all of Mormon communities were regarded um, as a spiritual practice, and the child-woman ratio in Kanab would reflect that. The main source of income for the communities would be, especially in Kanab, was raising livestock. Most of their livestock was... um, Most of their wealth was in livestock, vehicles, and shares of stock in corporate enterprises. And any sort of improvements made would rest upon their wealth. This order in Kanab, for example, was very wealthy, but within society there was major gaps. So here's one of the problems that leaders couldn't anticipate at first. Everyone owned the same amount of property. But some pieces of land were better than others. So what do you do if you map out this plot and your land has water rights and the other one doesn't? That makes it really difficult. Eventually, Brigham Young would order the community to diminish the financial gap that set them apart from the other communities because they were growing wealthier. And Brigham Young said, nope, that is a problem. We don't want you to be wealthier than the other communities. Why would anyone want to live in these communities aside from pressure from all your church leaders? Well, it's said that uh, since the frontier life was so difficult on so many people and they were so poor, uh, they found this as a way to really help them if they were living in poverty. Of course, the wealthy members were not fans of this. But we do know that um, it was made it easier to migrate since most of the wealth of the people was movable at the time, the number of families moving three or more times was below 50. Only 23 families moved four times or more, and 13 moved five times or more. So we have 13 families who moved at least to five different communities to try. This community didn't work for me. This community didn't work for me. Let's try another one. By the year of 1880, the United Order of Kanab was greatly decreased. Only two-thirds of the family left out of the original 80 families that came within the first year um, stayed. Many of them, like many of the the saints living in all of these sort of established orders, would migrate to Arizona, Nevada, New Mexico, and Mexico. And we know that this happened because of the government crackdown. A lot of them were were fleeing prosecution from the United States government. Let's talk about Orderville now. I keep saying that, but let's actually talk about Orderville. Orderville was established, Orderville was special because it was the longest lasting town. It lived the communal order for 10 years. And Leonard Arrington has a great chapter in his book about this that I will link, but it's definitely worth a read. It's a fascinating social experiment. It was established at the direction of Brigham Young in 1875, and sort of this voluntary form of communalism that Joseph Smith had spelled out. It was really settled primarily by destitute refugees from failed settlements in the Muddy River in Nevada. So all these people were coming in from really, really dire circumstances. Some historians think that the extreme poverty of these settlers likely contributed to um, the success of this because their devotion was so increased to the principles of the United Order. They were so poor, this was so much better than what they had, and they didn't want to screw it up. 
In just a few years after it was set up, Orderville grew into a thriving, self-sufficient community. The success and relative wealth of the community attracted more settlers, and Orderville would grow and grow and grow to about 700 people. And I know this is such a dumb, dumb comparison, but I... So forgive me, but I'm going to say it anyway. I uh, moderate several Facebook groups online, and we notice that as groups get bigger and bigger and bigger and more people get added, it's a natural consequence that there are more needs, more voices, more diversity, and it's really harder to control larger communities. So you can imagine that it was difficult at first to, to have a few families, and then as Orderville keeps growing and growing, to fit all the needs of all the people. The great thing about Orderville, and one of the reasons why it worked, is it was fluid. If something didn't work for the community, the community board would reassess and fix it, and try again, and try again, and try again. It not only provided for the needs of its own population, but it would produce a significant surplus for the sale of uh, to other communities which was then used to purchase additional land and equipment so they could keep expanding and expanding. It would end in 1885 when the church kind of lost interest in it and, you know, federal authorities started jailing many of Orderville's leaders. But but it was something that people mostly spoke fond of that lived there. Two-thirds of Orderville's population uh, were living the order of plural marriage. Two-thirds. So that should tell you something about it. I think that if you were going to live the order of plural marriage, you were already sort of used to this idea of the gospel was hard, and the harder it was, the more righteous you were. And so it kind of increased your devotion. So it makes sense to me that two-thirds of Orderville's population would be living plural marriage. Some historians say that if you moved into Orderville and you were a monogamist, it didn't take long before you became a polygamist. It was also seen sort of this part of this communal living. These Orderville saints went far beyond what Joseph Smith had envisioned in the law of consecration and stewardship. They ate together in a common dining hall. They would wear uniform clothing made by Orderville Industries out of the same bolt of cloth, and they lived in uniform apartments. They had an elected board that supervised all your activities, including entertainment, your schooling, your cooking, your clothing, your manufacturing, and farming. Private property just didn't exist. Though, if you had personal possessions, they were assigned to you by the board as a stewardship to each individual. So if you had like a vase or something that you had brought across the plains, you were, that was given to you as a stewardship that you were considered sort of taking care of it for the community. That's kind of how they resolved this idea. And if it sounds like this, you know, this, board was really controlling in in many ways they were when they were you know controlling how you cooked and what you cooked and when you ate and what you wore and what types of entertainment you have i'm going to tell you a little anecdote that kind of maybe gives you a, to- a sense of the tone of how these people ruled but first let me just tell you a little bit about their um how they prospered when 80 families moved to orderville their original assets were $21,551 combined between 80 families. In the first four years of operation, it went to 69562 so it more than doubled. And by 1883, their assets together were 80000 The leaders made adjustments as time went on, 
In, for example, in 1877, they replaced the earlier loose dependence upon willingness to contribute with an accounting system that placed uniform values on labor and commodities. The wages would vary by age and sex, but, but not by type of work. So they learned pretty quickly that your willingness to contribute was not a really good motivating factor. Clearly, some people were more motivated to work hard than others. They placed uniform values on labor and commodities. A flood in 1880, in 1880 would destroy the dining facilities, which ended the communal meals. And in 1883, Erasmus Snow, who was a regional church official, recommended moving to an unequal wage and partial stewardship system. The latter would give each family a plot of land to till for its own use. So they start to move away slowly, slowly from the communal system. Evolution away from the original communal purity continued as specific enterprises were leased to their operators for a fee retained by the order. And external pressure took its toll as well. Remember these, these mining towns that I told you about? The largely polygamous leadership of the community was decimated after the U.S. Congress passed the Edmunds-Tucker Act of 1882. And so that had a huge effect on it because a lot of the leaders were forced to exile or were jailed. But that's not all. A lot of the teenagers that had grown up in this town had seen the kids from nearby mining towns. These people were getting their clothes from Europe. They were getting their clothes from the East. They they were founded in an atmosphere of poverty. Don't forget that. These people were poor refugees. And not far away, for example, Silver Reef um, was a town and was a silver mine. And the coming of the railroad permitted development of this, these silver mines. And they were buying imported clothing and commodities. And the Orderville Saints came to be viewed as old-fashioned. They had floppy straw hats and these gray jeans. And often they were ridiculed. Orderville teenagers began to envy their peers, basically, is what it came down to. So here's the anecdote I was talking about that talks about their sort of board of directors and how this works. So there was a young man that wanted a new set of pants in Orderville. But the rules in Orderville said, nope, all pants come from the same bolt of cloth. His pants had no holes, so they said, sorry, you don't get new pants. Your pants are fine. Your request is denied. His particular community would raise sheep. That's what they did as their stewardship. So when he would shear the sheep, he would take the, um, when the lamb's tails were docked, this boy took all the, the wool from their tails and would gather it and store it in sacks. And when he was assigned to take a load of wool to Nephi, he secretly took the lamb's tail wool with his load and exchanged it in the store for a pair of store pants. He really wanted those store pants. Um, so he comes back to Orderville. This is a gutsy move. And he wears his new pants to the dance. And it's said that his entrance caused a sensation. One story says that a young lady rushed to him and embraces him and kissed him right away. So, of course, the president of the order demands an explanation. And the kid spills the beans. He says, this is what happened. And the leader says, according to your story, these pants belong to the order. You are requested to appear before the board of management tomorrow evening at half past eight and to bring the store pants with you, end quote. So this young man does it. He brings his pants and the board is really generous with them. They commend him for his sort of quick thinking and his enterprise. But they remind him of the rules that the pants must come from the same boulder cloth. So 
they want to prove a show of goodwill, so they agree to have the store pants unseamed and used as a pattern for all pants to be made in the future. So the new Orderville pants can have this sort of updated style. And the young man in question would get the first pair. So I think that that's a kind of a cute little anecdote to show how these people ruled. It wasn't always like that. Of course, there were conflicts. People, especially polygamous women that would leave the settlement later, said that it failed because of the selfishness of the people. But generally, it seemed that it worked for a time. Ten years to live that way is pretty remarkable. A woman named Lydia Ellen Nellie Porter Black was a young girl, for example, raised in Orderville. And I like to think about her, you know, I was reading about some of her stories online, and she grew up with polygamous parents, and eventually uh, they would leave Orderville because of prosecution, and she would meet a man in Mexico and also become a polygamist. But she was baptized in 1883 in Orderville, Utah. And she remembers, she has all these great memories of playing with her friends and her brothers and sisters in this little community in Orderville. She has happy memories from it. They're all wearing the same clothes. It was very common to say there were no poor among them. And I think it's a unique, interesting thing to think about being raised in a community like that, especially in contrast with the way that we look at economic exchange in Mormonism now. So I recommend looking at Arrington's book to learn more about Orderville. Or if you're driving down to southern Utah, stop into a diner and get a club sandwich in Orderville, Utah. Now I'm going to talk about Santa Clara, another southern Utah town. Perhaps the most famous polygamist that is associated with Santa Clara is Jacob Hamlin. And again, I can't recommend Todd Compton's book, A Frontier Life, enough, where it talks about Jacob Hamlin and his wives. And I'm particularly interested in Jacob Hamlin because his second wife, Sarah Priscilla Levitt, is a family member of mine. I'm a descendant through the Levitt line, and it was really fun reading about her. Sarah, in particular, got really got along really well with Jacob's first wife, Rachel. They wouldn't get along with a third wife, but they would get along together and I thought it was a kind of a sort of love story of how polygamy could work. Jacob Hamlin and some other Indian missionaries came down to Santa Clara as early as 1854, and they established a fort there. They were sent by President Brigham Young to teach and work with the native Paiute Indians. And again, Jacob Hamlin was sort of this benevolent colonizer. He really was progressive for his time. I'm not going to excuse the way that we colonize the Indians. And I think it's important to to remember that when I use the word settlement, that's a problematic word because it it sort of suggests that this land wasn't already being inhabited by other people who were already living there. But Jacob Hamlin was trying to be aware of this. He he truly, genuinely had a love for the Paiute people. He tried to live with them. He tried to reason with them. And of course, he tried to colonize them through baptism, but that was a very Mormon thing to do at the time, especially based on the Book of Mormon doctrine of turning them away from their wickedness. And they really believed that if they could baptize these Paiutes, that their skin would eventually become lighter and lighter and lighter, which is, of course, a very offensive doctrine, but a very strong one that still actually exists in a lot of Mormon culture today. So Jacob sets up this fort, and when the 1861 call comes from Brigham Young, which I talked about in the earlier podcast of St. George, a whole bunch of Swiss families are sent down to establish the colony. So if you have Swiss ancestors, there's a good chance they came from southern Utah. 
They were selected to cultivate the land because they were really good at growing grapes, I guess, in Switzerland. And um, they wanted they wanted Santa Clara to become the fruit and vegetable garden for Washington County. So that was kind of the goal. Some late calls were issued to go south after the 1861 announcement. And about 30 recently arrived Swiss families located to Santa Clara, which is a few miles west of St. George. While presumably some of them were aware of the plural order of matrimony when they arrived, most of them had any chance, if any, at all to embrace it before heading south. So they got there, it was super fast, the Swiss saints arrive, and they're sent to southern Utah. I'm going to tell you about some families um, in Santa Clara, Utah, because there's this really, really interesting story in Paula Kelly Harleen's new book, The Polygamous Wife's Writing Club. And I've been talking with um, Harleen, and I'm so excited because she's agreed to come on the podcast. So we're trying to nail down a time for her to come and talk about her book because it's fantastic. But Santa Clara is the backdrop for what Paula Kelly Harleen describes as, quote, one of the most harmonious portraits of polygamy ever penned. This would be between Martha Cox and her sister wives. Martha is a fascinating story to me, and I don't want to infer too much about this, but it really got me thinking. Um, and, I'll, and I'll give you sort of my editorial editorializing in just a second. Apparently, the interesting thing about Martha was she loved polygamy. She loved it. She wasn't one that just like privately said one thing and then publicly did another. She loved it. Apparently, Martha was far more closer with her sister wives than with her husband. The three women would rely on each other and had really this sort of love story that they really hoped would continue into the eternities. And she writes in her biography that when she first told her family in Southern Utah that she was going to marry polygamously, quote, the storm broke upon my head. It was not a marriage of love, they claimed, and in saying so, they struck me a blow, for I could not say that I really loved the man as lovers love, though I loved his wives and the spirit of their home. I could not assure my family that my marriage was gotten solely upon the foundation of love for man. The fact was, I asked the Lord to lead me in the right way for my best good and the way to fit me for a place in his kingdom. He told me how to go and I must follow in the path he dictated, and that's all there is to it. End quote. Harleen points out in her book that perhaps the option was best for Martha, who didn't seem interested in a monogamous relationship with a man because she preferred being married to other wives. In fact, Martha was so disinterested in her husband that in her autobiography, she never called him by his full name. And she so rarely mentions him that it's really hard for the reader to know if she's living with him at the time or where he's at. She did mention Henny who was the first wife, and Elizabeth, who was the second wife. In Martha's home, uh, the rule was, quote, perfect obedience and speak no words when angry. And when she got there, she learned that they had a system, a system that was hard for her at first, but she soon really learned to love and cherish. They would rise at 5 a.m., and the curfew was at 9 o'clock. Her family didn't eat much meat, they didn't drink tea, and they didn't use salt in their salt-risen bread. Can you imagine? 
She would explain that the first year of married life gave her more experience in the duties of life, in the duties of life than she had ever had before. She loved living there. She said that their household was quote so systemized and so well ordered that we could with ease do a great deal. End quote. These women really worked together as a team. One would do the kitchen work while the other would sweep and, you know, do the beds and the other would take care of the kids. And then they would split up their duties except for wash day where she said all hands were on deck and they would all come together and work. The women would share clothes, they would share baby clothes and maternity clothes and they helped one another out during childbirth. One time their husband made a bad investment and the sister wives had to step up and raise in to help the money to fix it. There is this fantastic story that just makes me have such a fondness for these women in my heart. When Martha first married into the family, she really wanted to be a school teacher in St. George. There was a position in a school that had opened up and she wanted it. But she didn't really have a lot of credentials or experience to back it up. And some of the students' parents felt like she was too poor and unqualified. And so they kind of, you know, campaigned to not get, have her have the job. Her sister wives, encouraged her. They rallied around her. They would not let her fail. And they came up with really clever ways to turn their own home into a schoolhouse for her to help jumpstart her career. They made desks, they made blackboards, they did everything. And she, she became so successful at the school that the schools were complaining that she was taking students away from it. And so she was given, giving a, given a calling to the fourth word school and she accepted it. Her sister wives would help her out then to manage clever ways to get give her the teaching supplies that she needed because her husband seemed very bad with money. There's a story of them taking the breadboard and they painted it black on the back side so she could use it as a chalkboard. I mean, I love this. The sister wife stepped in and helped her jumpstart her career. I think it's fantastic. You know, she talks about the first wife, um, Henny, and Henny had originally struggled with the principal. She said, quote, whenever my heart becomes between me and my father's work, it will have to break. So she was saying, you know, I know that this hurts my heart, but if it becomes between me and God, then it's my heart that has to be broken, which is really kind of a sad way to describe it. In 1881, because of federal pressure from the officials, the wives would break up and each really struggled with a separation. And Martha would write years later about looking forward to eternity in which she would be reunited with the quote, two best women in the world, end quote. In her writing um, about the eternities, she leaves out her husband altogether. She imagines the attorneys with quote, we three who loved each other more than sisters, children of one mother love, will go hand in hand together through all eternity, end quote. Harleen points out that Martha Cox may, quote, may have succeeded at polygamy because she loved her two sister wives more than she loved her husband, end quote. And I think that that's really an important distinction because as we've talked about in a few episodes back, that uh, sister wives really said, or women in polygamy really said, if you want polygamy to work, then you have to shut your heart off. But Harleen points out in this book that Martha didn't shut her heart off. She just redirected her love towards her sister wives and not to her husband. I think that that's interesting. And again, I don't want to speculate, but I imagine that if you didn't feel that you had love for man, as she says in her journal, and you didn't make sense of that in a sort of 19th century perspective, 
I don't really have any interest in being married to a man, but I do like these sister wives. It would make sense to me that you could see polygamy as an avenue for God answering your direction. Like maybe he made you this way to call you this way. And now I'm not going to say that Martha Cox was a lesbian because we don't know that, but I do think that it, it raises some interesting questions for us to think on and reflect on and how this worked in her own life. Of course, if you're a gay man, you're out of luck. (laughs) However, this is a really interesting story for me. Their close tight knit relationship was rare. It didn't, It's not that it didn't exist. Like I told you about Jacob Hamlin's first two wives really loved and relied on each other. But it was just that these stories are really, really rare. Compared to another family that Harleen mentions that lived in Santa Clara, there's a, there's a story of Mary Ann Hafen. She would live a really lonely, heartbreaking prairie life, caring for her seven children mostly by herself. In fact, it was so lonely that Harlene describes Mary Ann's life as almost a widow's life, even though her husband was alive and off caring for his other families. Even though Mary Ann Hafen and Martha Cox, who I mentioned earlier, both admitted that they were not close to their husbands, Mary Ann hadn't even wanted to marry John Hafen to begin with. She would write, quote, The law of plural marriage was being practiced in the church, and the authorities recommended that the men who were able to provide for more than one family should marry again. In this way, more persons in the spirit world world, would have the opportunity to come to earth and have bodies. Polygamy would also build up the church and and the country faster. Many did not want to go to polygamy, but felt that it was their religious duty to do so when advised by the church authorities, end quote. So again, we hear this this, uh, reasoning that it helped build up the kingdom faster, and it brought more spirits into the spirit world, which we know statistically is just not true. But the pioneers would have seen it differently. Now, as a side note, I want to talk about permissions from the wives. If you've been paying attention in the series, I have told you stories about women that have helped choose their sister wives and some women that had no idea. According to historian Jesse Embry, most descendants claimed that the husband had to obtain permission from the first wife to marry into plural marriage, although there was no set procedure to do so. And in fact, people would really disagree on who would give permission. Historical records show that some wives freely gave their consent for their husbands to take in plural wives, and many, many, many more were coerced or pressured into it. And some were not even aware of the marriages until after. Like we talked about in the St. George issue, there's a, there's a couple that they didn't even know that their husband had brought on a third wife. So the interesting thing to me, I want to just talk about the way that women were seen and the women were treated institutionally in the church. Because although permission of wives was not sort of as important, priesthood permission was very important. So it mattered more to people to get your priesthood leader to sign off on your plural marriage than it did with your own wife, which is interesting. Men rarely married, rarely married without permission from a high priesthood leader authority. Although we do know some cases, like in Southern Utah, John D. Lee talks about some men that did it and then they got in trouble later. But men really rarely married without permission. But even that was not systematic they didn't really know. They're, depending on where you lived, it was different. Did you get permission from your state president? Did you have to get it from the president of the church itself, the bishop? Who was it that gave you permission? And it all varied. 
So that's important when we talk about the story of Mary Ann Hafen. She had previously been married to her uncle through marriage, who was also a polygamist. He had been killed by a wagon accident on their honeymoon, and so she was heartbroken, and John Hafen comes courting again, and she doesn't want to marry him. Her parents were pressuring her into it because they said, listen, he's the best choice you have right now, and the older you get, the the less options you're going to have. But his first wife, Suzette, was opposed to taking another wife. She didn't want it. And like I talked about, the wife's permission was less important. But John Hafen had a lot of pressure from church authorities. It seems that he too was reluctant to do it, but he really wanted to do his duty. He wanted to be a good member of the church. He wanted to bring his family in the celestial kingdom. He wanted this. He really believed it. But Suzette just couldn't get on board. So church leaders said, do it, and Suzette will eventually learn to live with it all. So Mary Ann comes into the picture and says, I did not like to marry him under those circumstances, but being urged on by my parents and him, I consented, end quote. And you can imagine, Mary Ann doesn't want to say, I don't want to be married to a woman to a man whose wife doesn't even want me there. She consents to do it anyway. She's probably still heartbroken from her first marriage, from her uncle who she did admire. And on her way to Salt Lake City to go to the endowment house to marry him, she wrote, quote, I cried when I left home and cried often all the way up and back. John was kind to me and did everything he could to comfort and please me, but somehow I was not happy, end quote. And now we see John, John has done his duty, and he's trying really hard to share and be a good polygamous husband. So he's trying to share the time equally with his wives at first. However, not true to the prophecy of church leaders, Suzette did not learn to live with this. She was not happy and was extremely jealous and jealous of his time. So John responded to this by ignoring Mary Ann more and more. The two just didn't have a connection. They were doing it out of duty. Mary Ann starts to resent this. She says, I have needs too. I can't do these things on a prairie life all by myself. I need your help. So the two women begin to fight over John for attention. Both threatened to leave him, and John really seemed to try hard to reconcile this. He wrote before he died, quote, I complied with the celestial law of plural marriage in obedience to the church authorities, and because the commandment was divinely inspired, it cost me much heartache and sorrow, and I have shed many tears over it, end quote. And I like this story because even though it's a very sad story, and Mary Ann would go on to live a very lonely life, often ignored by John, I think it points to something. When we talk about motivations for plural marriage, often when we're being flippant or when we are being angry or when we're just not being thoughtful, we want to say it is all sexually motivated. And of course, there are accounts of descendants of um, polygamists saying, yeah, my father had lust. And some would say that polygamy was a good thing. They would say, yeah, because men have lust and this is what solved it. And others would say, yeah, my father was a perv and this is what solved it. So it was sort of this negative thing. But I think John's case is a perfect example to go to show the diversity of men that live this. I also think that Mormonism has a huge cultural reliance on the idea that men are really sexual and women aren't. Of course, this is a Victorian idea, and it's still largely present in society, but I think it's really compounded by polygamy. 
Because Brigham Young, we know, Orson Pratt, we know, and other leaders who had sort of these self-admitted insatiable lusts really saw polygamy as God's way of fixing that. And they thought, because I'm like this, because I like sex, and because I like women, this is God's way of reconciling this. And it really kind of permeated into the doctrine of the time that this is God's way to help men. I mean, they said that they felt bad. Leaders would say they felt bad for monogamous being strapped to one woman because they really felt like these men were being sexually repressed in a lot of ways. However, we know now through science and study that sexuality is on a spectrum, right? That goes for men and women. And so women would always, always lose on the sexual spectrum in polygamy because clearly they didn't have the options that men would have. But someone like John Hafen, you can tell this is not sexually motivated. He did not want to do this. You can clearly tell he had his loyalty and devotion to Suzette. And yet he did it under pressure and it caused him heartache. So I think we need to be careful when we say it's always about sex because I don't think that it is. I don't think it was always about sex. So there's my little rant. The last one we're going to talk about is the one I told you about that has sort of a trigger warning. We're going to talk about Cedar City. Cedar City has a lot of amazing history. So I would encourage you to to look that up. And I'm really excited because I have um, Judith Freeman is going to come on. She is the, the author of Red Water. And again, she's been working on a project, so it's been really difficult to nail her down for a time. But she has written one of my most fame, favorite books of all time. It's historical fiction, and it's very, very, very well-researched historical fiction, which I like. I hate historical fiction that really veers off. She does not. She writes about, it's a book called Red Water, and she writes about the wives of John D. Lee. And she focuses on three wives in particular and really tries to get in their head and uses historical records as a backdrop for that, and it's fantastic. And she, I will admit, is what got me interested in Southern Utah polygamy to begin with. But she talks about some of the things I'm going to talk about in her book and some of the things I'm going to talk about with Cedar City. So let's talk about a family in Cedar City really quick. This family would um, be famous. They would be involved in something called the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Now, I'm not going to use this space to talk about the Mountain Meadows Massacre because I've done a podcast on it earlier. It's not part of the Year of Polygamy series, but you can look on it. I did it actually hosting a Mormon Expression episode, and we brought on a great panelist to talk about this. But you cannot learn about Southern Utah history without studying Mountain Meadows Massacre. You just can't. So I would encourage you to read Blood of the Prophets by Will Bagley or uh, Massacre Mountain Meadows that uh, I think Turley did. And those are fantastic books to kind of explain what was going on. And I think we can learn a lot about Southern Utah by learning about this incident. But the short of it is around 120 or more um, Arkansas saints were coming through Utah during the Utah War, during this 1850s paranoia. They, um, there are rumors that they have destroyed crops, that they're raping women in Salt Lake City, and that they're bragging that they have the gun that killed Joseph Smith. Of course, these are all rumors. We do know that the saints made it very difficult through their pass- passage through Utah on their way that they would try to poison the water so their cattle would die and they would harass them and try to steal their flocks. And it was just really, really bad. And they just wanted to get out of there. So they are promised, uh, Jacob Hamlin is going up to Salt Lake City 
to marry Sarah Priscilla Levitt, his second wife in the endowment house. And he passes them and he says, Hey, I have some property outside of Santa Clara. You go there and you can stay. So the saints come through Cedar City. I'm sorry, the, the Baker Fancher party comes through Cedar City and they stop there and they are harassed. And that's when this plot is devised against them with John D. Lee and, uh, George A. Smith and some other very prominent men. And they basically, trap these saints um, on the mountain meadows, which is outside of Jacob Hamblin's home in Santa Clara. And they harass him for about seven days and they dress up as Indians and they get the local Indians involved and promise the Indians that they can have some of these goods. They harass them. Of course, I'm being very reductive in all of this. They harass them. And finally, and they, and you know, they injure a few of them and these saints are, these saints, these the Baker Fancher party is scared. They are tired. They are running out of water and they have little children with them. And so they send out a white flag and the Mormon leaders say, okay, we're going to help you. We're going to rescue you from these Indians who have been, you know, persecuting you for seven days. And of course the Indians and the Mormon settlers are involved. So they promise to lead them out with safety. They say, give us your guns though. Um, and we'll protect you. And they line them up in a line one by one, and each Mormon soldier is a, is assigned to them. Of course, the Mormon leaders at the time would go to Cedar City, round up a lot of men in the towns, even men that uh, didn't want to be there and told them it was their duty and recruited them for this. So they give them a gun. They have one Mormon soldier for each person in the wagon train. And in the back, they have a train for full of children, little, little children. Um, some say under the age of eight and some say under uh, those who couldn't talk, which I think is horrifying. And they have the injured in another wagon. They make the women go in front, line up in front and start walking ahead. And of course, the Indians are waiting in the bushes to kill the women because the Mormon men didn't want to kill the women. Someone gives us the signal, which is, brethren, do your duty. And the Indians jump from the bushes and slaughter the women, just slaughter them and hack them to pieces. And then the men turn and turn their guns on the, on the members of the Baker Fancher party that are with them. Of course, all hell breaks loose. People are running and screaming and crying. Children are screaming, crying for their parents. These people are beating and clubbing and shooting children. It's a horrific, horrific time in Mormon history. I mean, it's just ghastly. And of course, what they do is they take, they take the leftover children, the ones that are supposedly under the age of eight, because they're supposed to be considered, you know, innocent in the eyes of God. They round them up in a wagon and you can read some of the survivor stories because these children survived and had terrible, terrible memories of this. They take them to Jacob Hamlin's house. And of course, Jacob Hamlin would arrive later horrified by his account. And even though he was horrified, he did help cover up the, the massacre, but he arrives and there's all these really traumatized children at his home. And he and his wives would take care of some of the children and they would ship them off. John D. Lee even took one, a little boy who was so traumatized he couldn't talk. And, um, anyway, it's, it's horrific, but I think it's important. I think we all have a duty to read that, read about it, not to sort of gawk at like an, you know, a traffic accident off the side of the road, but to see what religious fanaticism can do, what obedience can do 
it can be a dangerous, dangerous tool. So with that as a backdrop, I'm going to tell you about a man who lived in Cedar City. His name was Philip, Philip Clinging Smith. He had moved in 1851 to southern Utah and was one of the first settlers in the Iron County, and he lent his blacksmithing skills to the newly formed Iron Mission. There's a lot of iron there. By the mid-1850s, he had three wives. He had Hannah, Margaretha, and Betsy, and they would have 15 children between them about four and five children, respectively. From 1852 to 1859, he became the Bishop of Cedar City. Of course, he was a Bishop of Cedar City when the Mountain Meadows Massacre happened. So because of his rank within the church, he was listed among the leaders of the massacre and was known to have carried the orders and other messages between the various militia officers. He was very much involved. However, he escaped prosecution. He was never listed in the 1859 arrest. That does not mean that he wasn't a part of it. It is known that he was supposedly tormented in the aftermath. He was said to be a little bit soft in how, you know, in how he acted towards it. And he, in the 1860s, he would move to Nevada to get out of Utah to, to escape sort of this ghost of Mountain Meadows that permeated Southern Utah for a long time after that. He also turned over state's evidence on the trial of John D. Lee. Now, when the massacre happened, all the men there supposedly took a blood oath of silence. And that they, it was said that if they ever broke the oath, they would be killed. This was an oath that he took. And these, as we know with Mormons, oaths are important. Covenants are important. And Brigham Young, at the time, I don't know if you know this about the temple, there was a blood there was a blood oath taken in the temple that Brigham Young had sort of instituted. He was really trying to incorporate, Brigham Young was really incorporating his Adam God doctrine into the temple at the time. And so these oaths were not uncommon. People believed that some sins could only be covered by taking your own life. And so they took this sort of blood oath to never talk about what they had done. We know that Philip was killed in Sonora, Mexico, Later on in life, many people think he was murdered because people tracked him down and uh, took vengeance on him for breaking the oath of silence when he turned over state's evidence against John D. Lee. Other people would say that he died of natural causes. So that's a historical mystery that someone out there might want to investigate. I think it's a great story. We do know that married to Henry, Hannah Henry Creamer, Betsy Cattle, and Margaretha Elliker. Now, I want you to think about these women and think about what it would have been like to be married to someone implicated in such a terrible thing. If you lived in Cedar City in the 1850s as a plural wife, there is a very good chance that your husband was involved in the massacre. There's a very good chance you would have heard about it. There was a very good chance you didn't talk about it. John D. Lee, um, has an interesting story where he brings a wife from England home, this young, girl with his idealistic views three months after the massacre and she comes home and she remembers seeing all these shoes these stained shoes lined up in his house and wonders what where they came from imagine what that would be like if you're a historian or an amateur historian or a budding historian i think a key to understanding and processing this might be in the journals of the women who were there. There is great work on Mountain Meadows Massacre. It's very much written about, but 
I would really be interested in reading more stories of people that were around it. It was a hard time. The interesting thing about Philip, Philip Clinging Smith in Cedar City is that his wife Betsy had a daughter named Priscilla. Now Priscilla, Priscilla is an interesting, interesting character. The reason why she's an interesting character is because of a book that came out by Anna J. Backus called Mountain Meadows Witness, The Life and Times of Philip, of Bishop Philip Clingsmith. Now, the church reconciled the monument in 1990, which reconciled is a very controversial word. Basically, they dedicated it and built a monument, a church monument to the monument. It's, it's something very controversial and something that I'm not happy about. But anyway, this, this woman, Anna, remembers, um, being troubled by this tragic incident after she learns that her ancestor, Philip Clinging Smith, was involved. So Anna asked her mother about her, and Anna's mother would say to her, never tell anyone he is your great-grandfather. Don't ever do that. So of course, you know, Anna's like, wow, that's really interesting. Why can't I tell people that he's my great-grandfather? So she wants to uncover this, so she goes on this journey to sort of uncover his life and learn more about him. And in doing so, she believed that her own mother was actually not Philip's daughter but that he only raised her. So this book by Anna Jean Backus um, unravels that um, this, this mystery about her mother, who, who would be the daughter of grandmother Priscilla Clinging Smith Urey. Now, in this book, she argues that Priscilla was a surviving child of the massacre and was raised by Philip Clinging Smith and his third wife, Betsy, in the Mormon faith. That's controversial because, like I said, after the massacre, the children were kind of shipped out to all these homes in southern Utah. But after a year, the government came and collected them. And there are amazing stories from the man that collected them. In fact, I think that the general that collected them from the government ended up marrying one of the survivors later on who was blinded by the incident. It's it's a really interesting story. But they collect all these children and... And again, I don't have this information, so if I'm getting the facts wrong on Mountain Meadows, forgive me. Um, but I think it was like 17 children that they rescued and took back and tried to give them to, to, um, family members. And I just can't imagine the horrific post-traumatic stress disorder that they would have suffered. But it's interesting to think that Priscilla would have been, would have stayed there and been raised by Betsy. So that's another story that you should read and kind of try to contextualize why that would happen. I want to talk about one more salacious thing. This is really, really salacious. But I've been promising people I would talk about it. It's horrifying. So if you couldn't handle the massacre, turn this off. This is going to be really bad. And I apologize in advance. But it's an interesting time to talk about Southern Utah frontier life. We're going to talk about the Southern Utah castrations. And I'm not talking about animals. I'm talking about human castrations. I'm going to open with a scripture from Matthew 19:12. For there are some eunuchs which were so born from their mother's wound, and there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men, and there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. There's an interesting account in Hosea Stout's diary, 
which reads on Saturday, Saturday 27th, February 1858. Now remember, the massacres in 57, 58, it should be no surprise things were happening in 1850s Utah like this. Here's what Hosea Stout writes, quote, This evening, several persons disguised as Indians entered Henry Jones's house and dragged him out of bed with a whore and castrated him by a square and close amputation, end quote. This is something that becomes really controversial in Mormon history, but there are several instances of men being castrated. Many people will say that it was because of sex crimes. If someone was a pedophile, if they were involved in incest or rape, that uh, this sort of vigilante justice would be castration. The affair of Henry Jones, which occurred during 1858, um, happened shortly after he returned to Salt Lake City from California, and he was accused of incest with his own mother. Of course, the church authorities had no desire to wash this out in courts. They didn't want this to be public, and it said that the local leaders referred the case to Porter Rockwell, who was one of the avenging angels or the Danites. Henry Jones was supposedly encountered in a saloon, and the Avengers drank with him until he was maudlin, and then they enticed him to an outlying section of the city. He was overpowered, bound, and gagged, and then Porter Rockwell castrated him. Jones would recover from the operation and with his mother attempted to escape to California, but that wasn't good enough. Porter and several other avenging angels followed them to Payson, and 60 miles south of Salt Lake City, there they cut the mother's throat and shot the son. They then, quote, pulled the building down upon the bodies, and there they lie today. And I'm going to link a Desert News article about the castration. Um, they mention they mentioned him as being castrated. He was sort of famous for that. The most famous castration of Southern Utah would be the the infamous story of Bishop Warren Snow. Now, I'm attaching also a PDF from John A. Peterson. He wrote his master's thesis at BYU in 1985 about Bishop Warren Snow, and it's a fascinating biography of this man. Warren Snow was a bishop of the church at Manti in San Pete County in 1857. He was a man of status and power, and he grew up, according to his biography, he grew up involved in all the violent parts of Mormon history. He was in Missouri. He was in the, you know, all the mob raids. He he became involved in the Utah War and the Black Hawk War. Violence was kind of his thing, so much so that he was assigned sort of a bodyguard of the militia. He was considered a tough guy. And because of this, he became one of Brigham Young's good friends and was given a lot of power in, in Manti. I'm going to read, I'm going to give you uh, the words of John D. Lee. And of course, these are troubling because of the source and the history of how this was compiled. But I think this tells a story in kind of um, a really interesting way. So in the words of John D. Lee, quote, he said, quote, I knew of many men being killed in Nauvoo. And I know of many a man who was quietly put out of the way by the orders of Joseph and his apostles while the church was there. In Utah, it has been the custom with the priesthood to make eunuchs of such men as were obnoxious to the leaders. This was done for a double purpose. First, it gave a perfect revenge, and next, it left the poor victim a living example to others of the dangers of disobeying counsel and not living as ordered by the priesthood. In Nauvoo, it was ordered from Joseph Smith and his apostles to beat, wound, and castrate all Gentiles that the police could not take in the act of entering or leaving a Mormon household under circumstances that led to the the belief 
that led to the belief that they had been there for immoral purposes. In Utah, it was a favorite revenge of old, worn-out members of the priesthood who wanted young women sealed to them and found that the girl preferred some handsome young man. The old priest generally got the girls, and many a young man was unsexed for refusing to give up his sweetheart at the request of an old and failing but still sensual apostle or member of the priesthood. As an illustration, Warren Snow was a bishop of the church at Manti San Pete County, Utah. He had several wives, but there was a fair, buxom young woman in the town that Snow wanted for a wife. She thanked him for the honor, offered, but told him she was then engaged to a young man, a member of the church, and consequently could not marry the old priest. He told her it was the will of God that she should marry him, and she must do so, that the young man could be got rid of, set on a mission, or dealt with in some way, that in fact a promise made to the young man was not binding, when she inf- when she was informed that it was contrary to the wishes of the authority, the girl continued obstinate. The authorities called on the young man and directed him to give up the young woman. This he steadfastly refused to do. He remained true to his intended and said he would die before he would surrender his intended wife to the embraces of another. The young man was ordered to go on a mission to some distant locality. But the mission was refused. It was then determined that the rebellious young man must be forced by harsh treatment to respect the advice and the orders of the priesthood. His fate was left to Bishop Snow for the decision. He decided that the young man should be castrated. Snow saying, quote, When that is done, he will not be liable to want the girl badly. She will listen to reason when she knows that her lover is no longer a man. It was then decided to call a meeting of the people who lived true to counsel, which was held in the schoolhouse in Manti. The young man was there, and was again requested, ordered, and threatened to get him to surrender the young woman to snow. But true to his plighted troth, he refused to consent to give up the girl. The lights were then put out, an attack was made on the young man. He was severely beaten, and then tied with his back down on a bench. When Bishop Snow took a bowie knife and performed the operation in a most brutal manner, and then took the portion severed from the victim and hung it up in the schoolhouse on a nail, so that that so that it could be seen by all who visited the house afterwards. The party then left the young man weltering in his blood and in a lifeless condition. During the night he succeeded in releasing himself from his confinement, and dragged himself to some haystacks where he laid until the next day, when he was discovered by his friends. The young man regained his health, but he has been an idiot or quite lunatic ever since. After the outrage, old Bishop Snow took occasion to get up get up a meeting. When all had assembled, the old man talked to the people about their duty to the church and their duty to obey counsel and the dangers of refusal, and then publicly called attention to the mangled parts of the young man that had been severed, severed from his person, and stated that the deed had been done to teach the people that the counsel of the priesthood must be obeyed. To make a long story short, I will say the young woman was soon after forced into being sealed to Bishop Snow. Brigham Young did nothing against Snow. He left him in charge of Bishop of Manti and ordered the matter to be hushed up. Later, Snow talked to the people about their duty to the church and their duty to obey counsel and the dangers of refusal and then publicly called attention to the, these mangled parts of the young man and stated that the deed had been done to teach people the counsel the priesthood must be obeyed. A few weeks later, a Bishop Blackburn shouted in Sunday meeting of all ages and both sexes, quote, I want the people of Provo to understand that the boys in Provo can use a knife as well as the boys in Sam Pete. Boys, get your knives ready. There is work for you, end quote. 
Bishop Snow would have been in his 40s at the time, and he already had several wives. But, you know, he wanted this young lady who was married to Thomas Lewis. He was the, he was the victim of this. And Thomas Lewis, they would call him later on in journals and in the papers, Torn Thomas, um, refused to do this. So he was punished um, by by doing this. And um, it's said that, you know, Brigham Young brother had come and said, this is what's happening. This is pretty terrible. Um, and of course, Warren Snow passed it off as an undisclosed sex crime. And Brigham Young would say, quote, I feel to sustain him. Just let the matter drop and say no more about it, and it will soon die away among the people. Brigham Young really felt a kinship to Bishop Snow. Later on, it's really interesting that Bishop Snow loses his power. This was this was a really controversial thing at the time. It wasn't like it was swept under the rug, but Brigham Young thought it was an appropriate action, at least enough so that it wasn't a big deal. Bishop Snow lost his power, ironically, when he was accused of embezzling tithing funds later on, and then he really lost Brigham Young's favor, and he kind of left the territory in shame. You can read more about this in D. Michael Quinn's excellent book, The Mormon Hierarchy, Extensions of Power. I believe it's on two page 250. And um, in John D. Lee's Confession, Mormonism Unveiled, or The Life and Confessions of the Late Mormon Bishop John D. Lee, which is, of course, problematic, but very, very interesting. And The Rocky Mountain Saints by T.B. Stenhouse in 1873, pages 301 and 302. And of course, this is what Wilford Woodruff says in his diary in volume 5, pages 54, 55. He said, quote, I then went to the president office and spent the evening. Bishop Blackburn was present. The subject came up and some persons leaving Provo who had apostatized. Them, some thought that Bishop Blackburn and President Snow was to blame. Brother Joseph Young presented the thing to President Young, but when the circumstances were told, President Brigham Young sustained the brethren who presided at Provo. The subject of eunuchs came up. Brigham said the day would come when thousands would be made eunuchs in order for them to be saved in the kingdom of God, end quote. Now, this is not the end of the story. Of course, remember when I talked about Judith Freeman's book, Red Water, she talks about John D. Lee's, um, one of his wives was a young girl and gifted to John D. Lee as a way to sort of get her parents out of trouble. This young girl's wife, um, these young girl's parents had complained about Bishop Warren Snow. Bishop Warren Snow was said to get more and more tyrannical. He did these things. There were more rumors of castrations. There was a rumor of a man that was castrated and then he, um, because someone wanted to marry him and then he escaped and lived with his betrothed in Nevada for the rest of their lives. But anyway, so this, this young woman, her, um, parents complained about it and they were scared of the avenging angels. And so they gave her to John D. Lee as sort of a, you know, as protection. And we're going to talk about John D. Lee's, John D. Lee's wives later, because this particular wife is someone that I have a fondness for. She has a crazy, crazy story, um, which is really, really sketchy actually. But, um, that, I just think that's an interesting side note. In the book from Eliza, Anna Eliza Young, the expose she would write after she divorced Brigham Young called Wife Number 19, which I want to point out she was not wife number 19, so that already points to some problems in her narrative. She talks about this Bishop Snow incident in something that I think, if this is true, is even an added tragedy to this. She says, quote, 
But still a greater marvel is the mother of Bishop Snow's poor victim still retains her faith in Mormonism. And since the cruel and disgraceful tragedy which deprived her of her son has been sealed to Brigham Young as one of his wives, it was not pity that moved him to marry her, nor a desire to comfort her and lighten her burdens, but it was because he saw by doing so he could advance his own interests. Mrs. Lewis is never mentioned among his wives, yet he was sealed to her about two years after his marriage to me. Brigham's matrimonial experiences hardly find a place here, but as Mrs. Lewis's alliance with the prophet came about in a way through this tragedy, it may not be out of place even in this chapter on blood atonement. San Pete was filled with so many sad memories to Mrs. Lewis after the terrible fate of her son that she could not remain there, reminded as she constantly was of the affair, so she removed to Provo where she bought herself a very pleasant home and being a woman of considerable wealth was living very comfortably when brigham commenced building a factory so near to her that it spoiled the beauty of the place and made it quite unpleasant the agents then proposed to bring the watercourse through her front yard and an arrangement to which she objected most emphatically the agents shocked at her unwillingness to have her property spoiled for the sake of brother brigham young's factory rushed in breathless haste to the prophet and told him of mrs lewis's rebellion he instantly formed a plan of inducing her to surrender. He went at once to Provo and presented himself to Mrs. Lewis with an offer of marriage, stating at the time, quote, I know you have had a great deal of trouble, Sister Lewis. You have suffered much for the sake of the gospel, and I pity you. I desire to do something for you. I wish in some way to comfort you, so I think you had better become part of my family. She was an old lady, with children all grown, and was perfectly independent of them or anyone and certainly had no need to marry for support. As the Mormons believe that no woman can enter heaven except some man go through the ordinances with her, very many are sealed in their old age to secure salvation. But as her husband had been a good Mormon, and they had attended to all the important matters, she was saved without the prof prophetic intervention. She had no need to marry for a husband who should look out for her welfare, as her children were ready and willing to do anything she needed done in the way of business. So she informed Brother Brigham that she didn't see why she should marry at all. Okay, so Anna Eliza Young goes on to say that she marries him anyway. We don't know exactly how it happened. But she marries and she gets sent to the farm. Now, the farm is Brigham Young's dairy house. And if you are going to be in Salt Lake City on, I think it's September 5th, we're going to be having a 5K race for Sunstone at this actual house that I'm going to be talking about. And the race is really fun. It's called Brigham's Butter Run. And, you know, you take a little vat of cream and, and a marble and you turn it into butter before the 5K is over. But we do it at Brigham's Dairy House. And it's this cute little pink fairy house at This is the Place Monument. And, of course, that has been relocated. It wasn't always there. But this pink home is one of, I think, two, I think if, if I'm remembering right, right, two homes called the Forest Farmhouse. And when you go there, they tell this delightful stories of how he built this for one of his favorite w wives, but that's not exactly the case. Many historians will tell you that Brigham Young sent wives that he didn't like or that were not his favorites to the Forest Farmhouse. Whether it was out of cruelty or practicality, nobody knows, but women that were there hated it. They were set to work for the good and welfare of the favorite wives. So often... You would go and you would stay there for years and years making butter or chicken or or eggs, producing that for women that lived in the lion house. And many women would complain about, you know, being broken, their bodies and spirits being broken there because it was just really, really hard work. So Anna Eliza R. Young 
says Miss Lewis goes to live there. She said, quote, When she had lived at the farm a year, she told me that Brigham had never been to see her once during all that time, but that he had got possession of her property and was made and was using it for factory purposes. The water course ran through her yard, her house was made an office, and the whole place was so changed and so entirely spoiled as a residence that she could never go live there again to live. She must, whether she would or not, live there until Brigham Young chose to move her somewhere else, or until her children could find some place for her to go. She supports herself entirely, independently of the man who has swindled her out of her home and her property, and the only assistance she receives is from her children, who are very kind to her, annoyed as they were at her for giving up the home, and above all, allowing it to fall in Brigham Young's hands. His duck and goose story was all misrepresentation, made use of merely to induce her to go to the farm, and when she got there she very soon found that she would have those lovely feather beds, not, at least, by raising the fowls to supply the feathers. The prophet's imagination had evidently run away with a memory when he ardently painted the glories of the farm to his bride. This poor lady was made a tool for the gratification of Brigham Young's avarice, and her son had been the victim to one of the followers' jealous anger. She has little to love Mormonism for. Its two leading doctrines of celestial marriage and blood atonement have pretty thoroughly shut out happiness from her life and rendered, rendered her in her old age lonely and dependent, end quote. So, to be fair, I have not fact-checked that Miss Lewis's life. I've just relied on Anna Eliza Webb's account. So I do not know the... um historical accuracy about that but we do know that the warren snow um incident occurred i know that john turner covers it in his book a little bit and he presented at mha about it a little bit and we know that it was happening i was reading fair's website and they were their um reasoning for it is just to say that you know that that it was usually used to cover up sex crimes and things like that so I guess I tell you that story just to help you contextualize what Southern Utah was like. If we talk about abuses and leaders now, which are horrible and terrible, imagine that your leaders had sort of this power to actually physically do something like this to you and sometimes kill you off, which there were many rumors that that had happened. Or Brigham Young, as according to Analyza Webb, could marry you, take away your possessions, and then send you to go to labor at the dairy farm. So those are all really, really salacious stories. Um, I'm sorry if they were hard to hear, but uh, that is Southern Utah. I mean, it was a crazy, crazy time. It's crazy time. And in fact, I go there when I go, I love Cedar City. And when I go through it, I feel haunted by these ghosts, by this memory of this fanaticism. Because there's a part of it, I admit, that still retains in my bones as if it's part of my Mormon DNA. And that's a little bit frightening to me. So anyway, I hope, if anything, this helps you contextualize obedience, the doctrine of obedience, the doctrine of sexuality with uh, how we frame men, and certainly how we frame marriage and communal living. So thanks again for listening. Please, if you can, support the podcast by leaving a donation on the podcast site at feministmormonhousewives.org. The donations help fund our fees. They're helping fund the many books that I've been buying and um, paying for my time to do this, which is making my, my family happy. So thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you on another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast.